Hey everyone, it's the Freelancer Show and today we have a special guest, Matthew Matola. Hey everyone, thanks for having me. Now Matthew is, we were actually just chatting before the show, he's in the process of launching a book but I was thinking it was coming out now. It's actually not coming out until January but he is super, super busy anyway talking about the types of topics that he's been um, researching and that is how freelancers and corporations can work together. Is that right? Is that what you've been working on? I wish um, I was um, researching. <laughs> researching would be a, a lot more sleep. Um, so, yeah, so it's been, it's been five years, or it's been over 10 years of research. <laughs> no, so the thing I do is, so the book's coming out in January, and then uh, Venturel, which is an operating system for freelancers to scale. Um, but it all comes back to the central theme of how do we enable freelancers to scale, which comes down to the freelancer side, but also the company side of what our company's looking for. And to be, you know, very tangible, uh, my dream is that companies spend millions of dollars on agencies like Deloitte, Accenture, you name it. How can we shift that spend over to freelancers so that instead of hiring these big agencies, they, they hire you. So that's the dream. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that's a, that's a noble dream too because yeah sure there's a place for all the really big agencies but at the same time there's a bit of milking the system going on and you know if if that was shifted towards freelancers I'm sure freelancers would do a really good job of managing their budget and delivering high quality work because so many freelancers really really care about the type of work that they're delivering it's not just a a budget item and a, and a profit for them. It's actually core to who they are. So that's a fantastic topic and well done for going down that path. Yeah, it's if, if only it was uh, if only it was the easiest. But um, no, I think in my background too is I've I've seen million dollar projects run through 100% freelancers, and so I've kind of uh, I've seen what we can do and what we can do is incredible. Uh, I've also personal experience. So when I was at Microsoft, uh, instead of getting headcount, it was just, let's, let's have some freelancers and let's have budget for freelancers. So I was actually over 15 freelancers that helped within, you know, ideation, actual development, when it came to design development, um, there's no way we would have gotten, did what we did uh, without freelancers and everything from, like I mentioned, ideation, go to market, development, sport and maintenance, you name it. So there's, there's nothing a freelance model can't do. It's just that currently it's kind of the wild, wild west in terms of companies want to work with freelancers, but the infrastructure and controls aren't necessarily there. If you talk to 10 freelancers, nine will probably, you know, not necessarily control it like an agency would. And so it's all about how do we enable the agency experience um, with the freelance model so that you can beat the agencies. And when it comes down to it, freelancers aren't competing with other freelancers. You're competing with agencies. Awesome. There is so much there that I want to unpack before we do. Just want to take a step back and just learn a little bit more about how you came to be the expert in this topic. What was your kind of background prior to writing this book and, you know, working in Venture L? How did you come into this? Yeah, for sure. So, so I think a lot of freelancers actually come into this totally by accident. They don't know it's called freelancing. They just know they're working on a project basis and usually they make more money and they have sort of the freedom and flexibility. Um, so for me, it was no different. I actually started as a freelancer and I loved, I loved every second of it. And I still, I mean, I still have my freelance company, right? That'll, that'll never leave. But um, so I started as a freelancer doing a lot of more management consulting. And so a lot of sort of market research and then business planning and financial and, 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 and financial management and accounting. Um, but I, the problem I felt at first was I couldn't scale. Like I, I think a lot of freelancers feel this. You feel like you have two options. You work more, you increase your billable rate, and you can't just increase your billable rate just because you want to. Um, and so that was kind of the situation I was at. And I was, I was kind of looking at options and it was like, well, the corporate path technically has training and development. And I, and, you know, 
freelance doesn't necessarily have that. And so that was the first, my first entry into freelancing was I was a freelance for myself. Um, I like to say I wasn't a good one though. I couldn't scale. So then my second sort of experience was I started to build a lot of the software behind freelance uh, solutions and ecosystems. And so I built a freelance platform um, that was connecting students and small businesses. And so that really taught me the mechanics behind, you know, the Upworks, the top towels, you name it. Uh, and then I joined a company, it was early at a company called Gigster, which is one of the leading freelance software development platforms. And so that really, that's what taught me how to run million dollar software projects, 100% through freelancers. And then sort of all throughout this journey, right? I mean, freelancers, you never leave. So I would be full-time worker, but then I would also take on freelance gigs as part of that. And then I would, I'd run my full-time role like I was a freelancer. And so little things like if I was, a, I started as a sales development rep. And I, I hired other freelancers to handle some of the research or handle some of the design. And so I think that mindset never leaves you. Um, so then from Gigster, I actually uh, had an opportunity to sort of lead Microsoft's customer-facing solution. And the, the problem statement was, how do we enable the large companies, right? The, the Fortune 500s, how do we enable them to hire, hire and work with freelancers just like the agency? And so at Gigster, we were doing, like I mentioned, these huge projects but when we looked at these large companies, it was great on a project-to-project basis. It was not scaling throughout the organization. And so I uh, had, the, had the awesome opportunity to work with some incredible people at Microsoft. And uh, like I mentioned, the problem statement was, how do we get these large companies to, to spend on you? And so woke up every morning just thinking, okay, how do we release these budgets? What's required there? Uh, ended up building a software layer so that these large companies could kind of hire and, hire and work with you. And then all through that, right? I mean, you, you never leave. Once you get the freelance bug, you never leave. And even though you become a full-time worker, like you still have that mindset, like I said. And so uh, starting this next company, the sort of problem statement was, okay, like we know that freelancers aren't scaling. We know that companies aren't scaling with freelance. And so how can we go and we attack this? And the the big insight we picked apart was the infrastructure just is, is not there. Uh, meaning there's tons of platforms, there's tons of solutions like Asana, Trello, you name it. Um, but there's nothing that's like an operating system. And so when we when we looked at what freelancers go through um, and we felt it, right? I mean, we waste, we look at the numbers, it's insane. We waste over $100,000 a year. We waste over half our time on admin and ops. And a lot of freelancers, uh, when they do start to team up, which is what we'll get into what sort of companies need, when they do start to team up, it takes too long just to form the team and to do the actual ad- administrative and operations. So yeah, so that's sort of been my background. The book, uh, to be honest, was in the middle of all this. Uh, thank God for freelancers again, because that was something where we take pride that we we wrote every single sentence. So we did not outsource. I think a dirty secret in publishing is a lot of times you have a ghostwriter. We did not have a ghostwriter, but we had over 10 freelancers handle every single part of the process. So the interviewing, uh, actually setting up the interviews, the writing of the original stories, editing, uh, PR. We actually even had a comedian come in. And so, uh, yeah, even even the book happened when we were both, me and my co-author were working full-time. Gee whiz. When I go and write a book, I want to have a comedian on my team. So awesome. <laughs> I think that's something that I need. <laughs> so great. great. Wow, that's that's incredible that you've done all those things. And and here was you thinking, oh, you know, freelancing tough, I can't scale. And I'm sure that if you came back to your original business now with all of these skills you developed over time, you'd have some clues on how to scale you've been now that you know how to manage these teams of freelancers. So this is really exciting. So for people out there that are only ever freelancing on their own well that's all they've ever done is there a solution can they let's let's unpack this thought so what's going to be the the best long-term options for them and what's going to be an easy win for them so I'm, I'm kind of asking two questions here but if they've only ever worked on their own is it easier to start working with corporations in teams of freelancers or is it easier for them to start working with their own teams of freelancers as a manager and are they going to be completely different paths for them or can they change their freelance business as they go like this is a really exciting idea yeah so so let's unpack that by at first sort of understanding why companies even work with freelancers and then we'll dive into sort of what companies are doing with freelancers and then we'll talk about sort of the how because I think in order yeah, to understand right. that question, right, we really got to understand this. And I think before I think even, that wasn't so much a question as a, a explosion abroad. of ideas. It's like, where do <laughs> we even go? Like, because for me, it's exciting that someone who's 
been stuck on their own. They want to work with people and they want to earn more money and they want to better scale themselves, like you're saying. But it's like, we don't know, do we scale our own business? Do we start hiring people or do we kind of join a bigger group or something that's going on? Yeah, where do we start? Sounds like you've got some ideas on where to start on this. So let's go for it. So, okay. So behind the logic of why, what, how, the number one thing we have to sort of hit, hit across right away is freelancing is not different in terms of the value you can add to a company, whether you're a freelancer or a full-time employee, we call it the amplification effect. If you are a good full-time employee, meaning you have a skill that's valuable, you will be an even better freelancer and you will make more money and you will have a better, you know, better, better options. If you are not valuable as a full-time employee, becoming a freelancer is not going to help. It's, it's, it's going to make your life worse. And so that's the first thing that we have to hit across right away is just because you, be, you became a freelancer does not mean that you are sitting in a good place. Um, you still, that's why we call it more of an amplification effect. So in kind of level setting, right? Sorry to, to dampen the mood. Um, but so, so from there, uh, in terms of why a company even hires a freelancer, because one big thing is when you think freelancer, a company thinks risk. There is so much risk in hiring freelancers instead of just hiring full-time or going through an agency. One quick example of that is there's this thing called, in the US, we call it classification, um, but it's consistent across, across the globe. But so what that means is that there's different ways to classify employees and a contractor is classified different than a W-2 or a full-time employee. And that means that the full-time employee is, uh, needs benefits, unemployment insurance, all these kind of things, right? And they're, they're country-specific, but they're pretty um, universal across the globe. If a company misclassifies you, meaning you work more than 40 hours a week for that one company, you go to their sprint meetings, you go to their company holiday party, these little things that you would think are just normal, if a company does that, you can turn around and have a class action lawsuit and they can be on the hook for multi-million dollars, right? Or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so another thing too, a quick one just to think about is if that company gives you a spreadsheet, that spreadsheet has a customer email on it, that company now might be on the hook for 4% of their global revenues because of GDPR. So before we talk about why they do hire you, understand that you are a risk. You are a crazy high risk, but you have such high benefits that you're going to be worth it. So in terms of why they even hire you, at a high level, and when, a board, when, a, when the board and, and leadership is talking about you, you're better, faster, cheaper. Better, meaning it's hyper-relevant expertise, and they can see the whites of your eyes. And so when you go to an agency, you have a bunch of generalists, and, they, and you generally have no idea who you're working with. Whereas the freelance model, they call it direct to talent because they know you, they can see you, uh, they have an actual relationship with you. Uh, second thing is you are the expert. And so instead of hiring a generalist, you might be the best in some very, very niche area. A quick example here is uh, a client was a bank in, in India looking to increase their millennial engagement in their checking accounts. Not only was this person a, I think it was a, a developer, um, uh, not only a developer, but had experience in gamification and uh, fintech. And so there's this crazy hyper-relevance that you have that a company can't have when they go to an agency or they hire full-time. So that's sort of the, the better. The faster is an easier one. If you go through an agency, it'll take around 30 days. You can get hired like this because there's not all this paperwork. It's not that hard to find you. So the better, the, the faster is there. The cheaper is they'll say publicly, they'll say cost efficiency because it sounds better and leaves them out of a PR nightmare. But you are cheaper because you don't have the overhead. So you don't have a giant office. You don't have all these employees. You don't have to go, you know, uh, take them out to dinner and all these kind of things. So why does a company even hire you? Because you're better, you're faster, and you're cheaper. Um, one of the buzzwords, if you want to think about, you know, what you can really say to these companies, we used to say scale of a, or speed of a startup, scale of an enterprise. And so they can innovate faster. They can have better customer experiences because you are better, faster, and cheaper than an agency in full time. In terms of the what, right? So what are people actually hiring freelance for? This is where it does start to become skill specific. And so when you go sort of uh, all around, you, you start to see that, I mean, creative industries are very heavily freelanced. Um, a lot of times the numbers were like 80% of companies. It was more of the marketing uh, type uh, departments that were really, really embracing freelancers. And so when we think of what, like it, it can be anything. Um, deeper than that though, is where is this happening? So you can think about freelance platforms, Upwork, uh, Fiverr, TopTal. There's millions of freelance platforms. 
um, companies do engage directly with these freelance platforms or they can go directly to you. So when we talk about the how, like how does this actually happen? The huge difference between you and an agency is that the person that you're talking to probably isn't an HR, but is probably a product person that needs to get stuff done. And so they don't want to spend their day looking at job descriptions, shortlisting, actually managing you. They probably need to get stuff done and they already have direct reports that they, that they are over their skis having to actually manage. Um, so that's something very important for you to understand. The second thing, though, is in order to get you into the building, and this is very large company specific, they can't just hire you as an individual. So sadly, they can't just be like, hey, Matt, here's, you know, here's your Venmo or here's our PayPal. Let's, let's hire you. They have to do it in a very compliant way. And if you think about how a company is structured, you have usually like a, a procurement or a finance or some type of function that's making sure the company is doing it in a compliant way. They're not going to get sued. And so you are an individual. You are a vendor. And you are actually, this is why we say you're competing against an agency. You are competing for procurement to actually care about you, meaning to make sure that they are bringing a compliant vendor into the building. So at a high level, why do companies care about you? You're better, you're faster, you're cost efficient. What do companies hire you for? It can be anything. You probably know best based off of your industry where you can actually find or what's, what's your best path, whether it's to be on a freelance platform, engage directly. In terms of the how, what's really important for you to know is that the person you're working with, they don't want to hire. They don't want to manage. They need to get stuff done. And you do have to become generally an approved vendor, meaning you can't just go and show up as an individual. Uh, so yeah, so that was kind of a crash course of, you know, why in the world the company would even hire you. And I think it's very important for you to understand that just so that you can talk apples to apples with the, with the hiring manager. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I'm still a little confused actually in terms of if someone, if so if someone is wanting to broaden their freelance business at the moment is going for a corporate gig, like you're saying here, is that the the kind of the best option for them to get started on? Or do people often start trying to manage their own freelance teams first and then they become kind of the the agency and they're bringing people on? What, which way do people tend to go first? And which is the which, which is the kind of the easiest way to get started? And which way in the long term is going to bear the most fruit, do you think? Go where the relationship is. That's generally how these things happen. Um, if you don't have a relationship prior with that company or you're not working with a fellow freelancer who has the relationship, it's going to be very, very hard to, to do that. You can join talent. So this is where talent marketplaces like the Upworks and the Paros and the business talent groups are good, is that if you are in a, in a high-skill creative field, um, those platforms can connect you with the different, uh, with the large companies. In terms of should you, that's a huge question. Because a freelancer for a large company um, is going to be fundamentally different than a freelancer for a startup or a small business. And there's going to be some, and, and listen, this isn't universal, right? So mm -hmm. there is a difference between your one content writer and this company just hires like a hundred or, you know, 50 freelancer, 50 content writers. Um, that's going to be totally different than you're working directly with the CMO or you're working directly with a product marketing manager or product manager. The difference there, and this is why, you know, we'll talk about it later, but when you mentioned teaming, so the number one problem for companies, the reason that they say freelance doesn't scale is because it's too hard to work with freelancers. And there's two main reasons, like looking at the data, there's two main reasons for that. The first is that it's too much work. And so, like I mentioned before, these people don't want to do a job description. They don't want to shortlist. They don't want to manage. The second thing is that the outcomes are all over the place. And so if you hire, you know, say you take two people, one person's going to have the best experience ever. The other person is probably going to get fired because they should have gone with Accenture. And, the re and there's so many different reasons for that. But I mean, you know, it as freelancers, like if someone says, I want this PowerPoint design and you don't actually know exactly what they need, good luck getting a successful outcome. And the difference with an agency is that an agency provides consistent outcomes and they have processes to make sure that, that they know exactly what the person is already expecting. So that'd be my quick, quick uh, advice is it's all about the relationship. Um, and even our data points to AdventureL, the leading source of work is actually fellow freelancers. It's not sending a bunch of emails. It's even not the talent marketplaces. 
it's being with the right network of freelancers that need to bring you in in a collaborative manner. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's no real quickest way because the work doesn't just turn up on your door once you make a decision. It's more about the the process of getting there. Like, I guess the reason why my brain goes in that direction is as a freelancer, I've never worked with these large corporations on a team of freelancers. So, but my process hasn't been an easy one. I, I guess I ended up scaling through the turning yourself into an agency route. So I ended up bringing people on and I quickly discovered the types of things that you're talking about here that are risks because I would bring on freelancers because of the fact that they were less expensive and I would have the talent immediately, uh, just like you were saying. But then I found that each freelancer had their own processes and there would be a very inconsistent way of delivering the service, which as the owner of my business made me feel uncomfortable because if I was in if I was in the relationship with the client, so it's me in the relationship, I didn't want to taint the relationship by delivering something that was either substandard, as in not representative of what I would have done, or something that was just different from what I described because that would be confusing and then it would it would affect the relationship because they would not be able to trust me in the future. And so that's where where I was thinking I need to make sure that there is consistency. And so the path I just naturally went down was to try to control everything. And, you know, I've got a whole lot of processes and I'm a bit of a process Nazi, to be honest. I've got processes for everything. Now, I don't know if that if I'm in a true freelance model then because if I bring on a freelancer, I still want them to follow my processes. So it may well be that I'm not, terribly compliant but I haven't been having um like too many people working like 40 hours a week but so so that's kind of where I've come from and this idea of working with a large corporation on a team where you're all freelancers that's really alien to me and I didn't know if that was an easier route or if that's a lot harder but like you're saying it's it's down to the relationships you're forming you need to form relationships with the type of people that would bring you onto that team. So, so if someone is working on a, a team of freelancers like that with a corporation, how do you get around the fact that everyone is bringing to the team their own way of doing things? Isn't it like herding cats? How do you actually get anything done? How, I mean, you're saying the person that hires them doesn't want to manage them. I mean, from my experience, when I brought people on, I wanted to manage them because I wanted that consistency. But if they're just an employee themselves, if they're not the relationship holder and they're like a middle manager, then they haven't necessarily got that same drive that I had. So how does that person, or how does the freelancer and the the, uh, project holder kind of work together with all this great team of people without it just turning into a crazy mess of people doing their own thing. Yeah. So, so this is where it's funny. It, it's, it's no different than work. <laughs> this is where like freelance, it, it, we, we, we got to get away from thinking freelance is unique. It's totally not. And so if I am a director, right, whether I'm a freelancer that hired has a network of 30 to 50 freelancers that I work with, or I'm a director, I got to get stuff done. And so if I'm a director, maybe my, you know, quarterly KPI that I'm, that I'm measured by is NPS, or maybe it's getting a hundred articles or something like that. Um, so that's, that's, that's my outcome. And then underneath me, I figure out that, okay, I need to have five direct reports and each direct report has to have at least five people. Cause I need a team of 50 or something like that, that whether I'm a freelancer or a full-time employee, we still have these challenges of, do I have to now train every person that I work with to work the way that I do? Uh, you think that you work in a company that everyone works the same. Totally not true, right? Every single team is totally different, has their own processes, you name it. Uh, even within a company like Microsoft, you probably have multiple teams doing the same exact thing. And if you think about something like uh, like marketing, you don't have just one marketing team. And so even within work to sort of believe that uh, everyone's doing the same thing or has the same processes or the same quality expectations, it, it, it's just it's just not true, right? And so... Uh, so, so bringing it back to okay, how do how do I face that if I'm the freelancer or even if I'm the director? And and we'll give you a very tangible example. So let's say 
you're a freelancer and you are working with a uh, program manager uh, at a large company and you're tasked with killing an event or sorry, which is making sure that an event goes smoothly. And within making the event go smoothly, you have to market the event. You have to actually organize the event. You have to figure out all the speakers. You have to make it go off without a hitch. You have to, and maybe you hold yourself accountable to something like NPS, right? Um, whether you're full-time or the freelancer, you still have to have people underneath you, figure out who's going to do what. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it herding cats. I would more call it understanding the vision and being the one responsible for the outcomes to get there. And so this is what- a lot more positive way of saying it. Yeah. And what that allows you to do is like, like one of the things is like, I'm a horrendous manager. I hate managing. I think I just, I'm not good at it. And I'm very good at deep relationships, but I'm never going to be the type that just tells a bunch of people what to do and takes credit for it. Never will happen. With that said, I recognize that in my role, there's things that I'm not too good at and things that I just can't do, and things that I don't have the time for. And so I need to make sure that I have those inputs taken care of. Uh, and that's the biggest problem that companies face when dealing with freelancers, is that if a freelancer thinks of themselves as an individual, they're going to be not too valuable, because just like every single employer, you have to be resourceful, you have to be adaptive. And so when your boss, when you're an employee, and your boss says, hey, can you do this? You say yes, you're, you really can't say no. It's similar to a freelancer, and that's what agencies can enable. Agencies are enabled to, or basically, can say yes to anything. Uh, and the way they're they're structured, right, is you have the partner that takes you out to dinner, figures out what your real problem is, figures out the solution you already have in your head. They tell the account manager. The account manager actually understands the working teams, but the client doesn't see any of this. And so that's why when you ask, like, what's it like from a working relationship perspective? It's that same expectation where there still might be collaboration. Like you still might work with the the actual uh, hi, you know hiring manager, PMM, you name it. But the difference is you're expected to deliver outcomes. And most of the clients, they don't care if you hire five people, ten people, fifteen people, you name it. Um, they call it subcontracting. You, they know you're doing it as long as you can perform outcomes. That's what's really really important. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the reasons why I enjoy freelancing is I like to control the way that I'm performing outcomes. So I don't like to, I, I care a lot about the quality of what I'm doing and I don't like to deliver things quickly without thinking about how it's being done because I don't want someone to come back to me in six months time and say, Hey, it's broken. So I like to do a really good quality job at the beginning and then have it last for the long term now when I've worked as an employee depending on the management ideals there's been some managers that just wanted the quick and dirty others have gone more for that long-term approach but it's really down to what the manager wanted not what I wanted whereas when I'm running my own business I'm now the person in charge <laughs> and especially if I quote on projects then I'm, I'll be able to say, this is how much the project costs. This is what's in it. Take it or leave it. I didn't have to negotiate on hours. Now, if I was working hourly and I had a manager who was project managing the whole thing and I was just at the whim of what that person was telling me to do, I didn't think I would feel, and I guess this is a feeling thing, but I didn't think I would feel like a legit business owner anymore I think I'd feel like I'd sold out yep makes total uh, sense yeah so is is this something that people are going through when they start working with corporations or are they still able to control their own projects I, I can't stress enough that it really comes down to the relationships all you are as a freelancer is you're on a contract basis that's the only difference there's like we mentioned right there's, there's things like compliance and, and different things but at the end of the day it really comes down to relationships. And just like when you said you were a full-time employee and some leaders were like, just get it done, where other leaders were very long-term and, and quality controlled, it's, it's, it's really no different. Um, and what we've noticed, what we've noticed and what I've personally experienced as both hiring and being a freelancer is, yeah, when it comes down to it, there's five to 15 good clients that we want to work with. Likewise, there's 30 to 50 good freelancers that I want to work with. And there might be a freelancer that I love to work with, but you don't. Right. And that's totally fine. That's that's one of the huge things that we're so passionate about is we know that, you know, people don't have an absolute expectation or an absolute judgment of someone. And so I might look at this design and say five stars. 
you might look and be like one star. We're both not right. <laughs> like it's more about making sure we align the expectations. So I really think it, it really comes down to relationships. Um, with that said, there's definitely some controls. So I, one of the things you're talking about with control that I'm, I'm really passionate about is how do you figure out in the cheapest and quickest way if this is the right person to work with? And for me, like I, I'm huge on statement of works and mini test projects before you actually dive headfirst in. And I, I err on the side more of I trust other people to do it and I like to get wowed, um, but I don't just give them a huge contract, right? It's always a start with a small little test. Maybe it's a statement of work. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's, that's been my check. And to be honest with my age, I, I usually when I hire other people, like I don't know what I'm hiring for. And I think that's very common across when you work with companies, they don't know what you're hiring, hiring you for either. You have to own the engagement from the start. Bam. So that relationship and figuring out ways to really, really curate a relationship is what it comes down to. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. That's really interesting. And actually, I've been doing the same now when I... I haven't had to hire anyone in ages because I've got a good team. But for a while, I was trying to make this whole team thing work. And what I ended up settling on in terms of like mini projects was to get people to write procedures for how either, either interpreting what I wanted them to do or how they would do it and they would write it up in a procedure. And if their procedure was flowed well and it was logically coherent and they were able to illustrate their points well then I figured I could probably work with them but it was interesting how many people seemed to have an amazing grasp of English and they could write an application really well and then you give them an actual task and it was like my goodness, I'm so glad I haven't hired this person <laughs> and uh, I, I my most recent experience, I ended up going through freelance agencies where it's kind of a full-time gig, but the agency does the, that they're actually an employee of the agency. And I insisted on not just having an interview, like a face-to-face -face interview, but they had to actually answer written questions um, because I wanted to know what their thoughts were when they weren't like when you're having a conversation sometimes you, you can kind of change the topic a bit to talk more about something you know more about if there's something you know less about but I wanted to know how someone answers real questions and whether they just fudge it or whether they'll do the research or you know how they go about it and I just found so many dodgy answers that it was heartbreaking it made me not want to hire anyone at all <laughs> eventually I found you know the right people but I can really understand where you're saying that that's a, a risk because from the perspective of the manager, they don't know if they're getting something high quality at all. These little sample projects that you're talking about, what kinds of projects would, I mean, you, you said a statement of work, but could you please describe that in a little bit more detail as well, like what yeah. that actually means? Yeah, I'll give you a per example right now. And, and, and I usually don't even interview, to be honest, because I know I'm just going to be biased. Uh, I'm pretty easy. If anyone's listening and they, and they somehow want to get money from me, if you bring up my hometown, I'm going to think you're immediately funny, smart, attractive, you name it. And so 
like I'm a sucker. And so if you're funny and you bring up my hometown, like you're going to get the job, but that's, that shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. So, so I just, I, I usually skip the interview and go straight to this, but so I'll give you a quick example right now. Um, we're, we're understand, trying to understand our marketing strategy at a high level. And to be honest, we have no idea what we're doing. We know a couple of the inputs. You can read a bunch of blogs about this. There's tons of stuff online, but we're looking for a freelancer that can own the engagement. Now, this is much more than just, hey, can you write an article? Can you do a, a blog post? Can you do a presentation? You name it. Um, so in a situation like this, if I was hiring full time, this would have to be like a you know, 10 plus year role, have experience at XYZ company, um, but this is with freelancers. And so what we do instead is we, we hire for something like the statement of work and we just say, hey, can you help us understand what we need? Now, it sounds simple, right? But it is so valuable if you can teach your client what the client actually needs. Everything from this is the type of uh, framework you should be using. This is what a typical roadmap looks like. Uh, when a lot of times when I was starting to lead go to market uh, while at Microsoft, I didn't even know what editorial calendar was. But I knew that I had to somehow get to seven customers. And to get to seven customers, I probably needed at least 100 customers in pipeline. So if you can help me understand sort of what it is to get to these things, that's where you add the true value. So right now, like with marketing, right? If someone can come to us right now and say, this should be your content marketing strategy. This is the statement of work. This is the roadmap. This is what I can deliver you after two weeks. This is what I can deliver you after four weeks. I recognize it's not going to just be me. So these are the other inputs that you have to deliver. Um, there's an example of you just, you start small, right? And you just have them really, really own the engagement. Something like a, a PowerPoint though is, is where it can get different, right? Where it's smaller. That's where I still drop a statement of work, but I rely on comparables. So comparables is actually a very, very strong secret weapon for freelancers. If you want to know how the client thinks and also align expectations from the start, bring up comparables. Um, one of the little insider comparables, sorry. Yeah. So if you're doing a PowerPoint, show a PowerPoint you did prior or show a PowerPoint that you think that person would want. If you're doing oh, a landing so page, examples of previous work. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and not even your work. It can be other person's work. It's just examples of work that the client looks at and says, Ooh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, okay. well, that's one of the dirty secrets of consulting, right? Usually the consultant doesn't do anything new. They just have a partner that took the person out for dinner and understands what they really, really want. So um, having a swipe so, file is pretty important then because if you can yes. pull out examples. Okay. Exactly. And that's why things like statement of works are so important because you're signaling to the client that this is more than just working with the freelancer you're paying by the hour. This is you're hiring someone who's going to be a direct report. I think mm. that's the, the biggest takeaway for freelancers is, is listen, if, if you want to be that passive, just sit on a talent marketplace and do gigs, like this is not advice for you, right? This is, a, this is advice for someone that wants to scale across an organization, meaning get work from that same organization. This is not gig advice. But so, um, yeah, so the, the statement of work is a, is a huge tool that I can't recommend enough of every single freelancer understanding what that is, how to drive it, what your statement of work should look like. Uh, and you as a freelancer, like you're doing 80% of, uh, 80% of your projects are pretty similar. The difference is you have range across industries. So you, you kind of also have to understand why consulting has value. And one of the main reasons consulting has a value is because me as the buyer, I'm doing this say once a year, or I'm doing this twice a year or three times a year. You as a freelancer are doing this all the time and you have exposure to different industries and different ways that other companies are doing this. And so when I hire you, I'm seeing way more experience than it would take me to do it or me to hire full time. Um, that's a huge thing, just like it's a consulting dirty secret, right? Is, is you go to my competitor, you figure out what my competitor does and you sell me the same thing. That's really powerful. I, I like what you've described there because I can really see how preparing that statement of work would separate the really experienced, high quality people from the passive people. The passive people are just there to take orders and they're acting as a pseudo employee in a way. But even when you're thinking about employees, there are some employees that they're just, they, they're experienced, they're confident, they're willing to take risks, they're willing to research if they don't know the answers. And then there'll be some people that just want their hand held all the time. And that's where you have that management burden. And you're saying freelancers are no different from employees. There's just a different contractual relationship. So the risk of getting one of those handholding types, but then needing to manage them as well, that gets to be a real pain. So that statement of work that you've just described 
would really show the strategic skills for a person. And I think that's a fantastic tool. Um, now, before we finish up, I'd really like to know a bit more about uh, the solution that you've come up with, uh, or at least that you're working on with Venture L and how that helps to bridge some of the gaps in um, my understanding is that it solves some of the administrative problems for these disparate teams and also that it helps with efficiency. Can you describe that a little bit and kind of what the problem was that caused that to be required and then how that solve, helps to solve the problem? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think I think most exciting for or more value added for freelancers for you to hear is so the main problem statement that many of us were feeling in companies was that you would find a good freelancer. That freelancer had a giant capacity constraint, and so what would happen would be you out of out of ten freelancers, two would be incredible, but those two incredible freelancers can't do everything. And so that was like the huge problem that, you know, and then it turned into these freelancers, the, the whole freelance economy isn't scaling. Um, but so from a, from a freelancer perspective, the reason for that is because, like I mentioned, sort of you're, you're wasting half your time on admin and ops. And when we say admin and ops, just think about anything that's not billable or anything that's not value and strategic. Um, and when we really dug into, okay, what does that mean that you're wasting over half your time? there is three things that every good freelancer does. And when we say good freelancer, we mean a freelancer that, uh, not to get too technical on numbers, but let's say you're, you're doing more than three projects at once. Uh, you're making over 10K a month with each, like with each client or, or in total. Um, these, are, these, are not the, these are not gig, right? These are pure uh, deep relationships. But so what we noticed was that there was three things that each good freelancer was doing. The first was that they did have a strong freelancer network. And that freelancer network was both to team up, also to refer work and to get work from each other. And so from a client side, there's actually two things that um, when we would ask for something, there'd be two answers. It's always a yes, but the answer is I can do it and I'll create the team or I can't do it, but I'll find the person that can. And so that's why having that network is so strong. So the first thing was these freelancers have very, very deep networks. Um, and when I say deep, I mean, usually it's 10 to 50 we've noticed is where they can reach from. Um, the second thing was they did have strong client outcomes. So this was the managing over three projects at once, having multiple clients, but still really owning engagements. Everything from client comes in, I have a strong statement of work. We have the strong comparables or examples or names before it. Um, here's the contract, whether it's NDAs, you name it. And then, so really, really understand that client process. And then the third thing was the organizational process, which you, Petra, like you always talk about, you have the standing operating procedures, right? And when freelancers come in, it is a step-by-step -step process and they're not doing the same thing or they're not um, off on their own. Yeah. Along with that, there's okay, I was listening like, to what you were saying before as well. I've got all of that onboarding all sorted out as well. I, so I know you when do. the client <laughs> when when I engage it well, when the client engages me, not me engage the client, but when, when they work with me, I'm leading them through a process as well, which I think they then feel confidence in me because uh, I have everything all sequenced out. Uh, they get, this is what we do now. Here's the contract. This is the statement of work. This is what we do. Not necessarily in that order, but, um, and then here's your, here's your client folder. Here is the, how you'll be getting status updates from me. This is how we'll communicate. And everything is spelled out to them. They don't have to lift a finger. They just have to pay attention to that early onboarding in terms of what, how I'm going to be engaging with them and, and vice versa. And that gives them confidence in working with me. And that had to be figured out. That process didn't all just emerge out of my brain. We, we started with a framework and then built on it over time as I saw, well, this isn't quite as good as I'd like. I just kept thinking of, as a client, what would be the most ideal process for a smooth onboarding? And I just kept refining it. But anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted you then. But I think that onboarding is so important. And um, I, I actually had a client who was part of a networking group that I was in. And he ended up raving about my onboarding process of all things. I mean, I would think that it would be the actual delivery that would be important. But he ended up standing up at this networking event and said, Petra has the most incredible onboarding process I've ever experienced. And I was like, okay. So that was really important to him. 
<laughs> Sorry. Continue yeah. No, no, it's perfect. And, and, and I think, you know, not too much of a side tangent, but I think uh, every, if you haven't been in corporate, if you haven't been in corporate leadership, we're, you're, every corporate leader is feeling the same thing. They feel pressure from up top. And the reason they feel pressure from up top is because they are constantly challenged with what are you doing? When will you do it by? And they, unlike you, when you can probably let a little something slide and no one's going to be at your, at your beck and call, they might get fired, right? They might not get the promotion. And so you do have to have extreme empathy for your clients if they are sitting in corporate that they have insane pressure looking on top of them. And if you talk about most large companies, it's not just one boss. You're talking about this giant chain, uh, giant chains of command where you might be the, the this you're the person working with. They might be fifth in the pecking order, meaning the person above them also has a person above them, was a person above them. And so you have to have extreme empathy of these people deal with insane amounts of stress. And at the end of the day, what they need to know, usually every Monday or every Friday, or sometimes when they get a ping from their from their boss, is what is happening and when it will be done by. So when they think about you, you know, the reason that person loves your onboarding is because they trust that they know what you're doing and when it's going to get done by. And so everything in working with sort of relationship management is all about that. You know, what are you doing? When's it going to get done by? So, so to bring it back, so the, the three things were that uh, we were noticing from freelancers and, and we did personally and, and yeah, and was strong freelancer network, strong client, uh, client operations. And then the third was strong business operations. And so, and this is like company wide. And so we're a really good example of this actually is if you're a designer, you might have things like UI kits and those UI kits might be uniquely you. Now, when you start a new project and you're working with other freelancers, how do you make sure that those other freelancers have your UI kits? Are you going to email each other the links back and forth? Probably not. You're going to get stuck in request access and all that kind of stuff. So what Venturel, what we are, is think about it as a fundamental reboot where finally we're building something exclusively for you. So when you look at like a Notion and a Trello and a Sauna and all these project management tools, they're great. Like they work really, really well. Like Monday, you name it, they work really, really well. But they're not built for a, a freelance environment. They're built for a remote full-time team. So little things become huge. For example, I think we talked about this better, like, like permissioning and you name it. So at our core, what we are is we are the first exclusively built for freelancer scale, and we call it an operating system. And so the three drivers that I told you about, every single action in the, in the platform and in the software is geared towards making your life as easy as possible to facilitate those three drivers. So one thing is if you're if you're running on Venturel, it's super easy to add your fellow freelancers, organize them so you know exactly who to turn to, and then assemble them in teams. The second thing from a client operations, it's super easy to have you know over five different tools that your customers are using, but integrate that into one workspace. So instead of having to have a million tabs open, you open up one and you can see these are the exact client, these are the exact projects, these are the clients, this is the progress of each project, these are who's working with them. And you can, you know, what we're getting to is you can push button and certain things can happen. For example, invoices sent, uh, you know, project is approved, you name it. And then the third thing when it comes to standard operating procedures is we both enable you to have your own, but we also enable sort of the communities to work together. What I mean by that is you might have the best pricing template for your specific niche. Now, a freelancer might be wanting to get into a project that's related to yours. They aren't going to have that pricing template, so you can share that with them. Other things like statement of works. Uh, you might be a freelancer that has a kick-ass statement of work, but... I mean, you can't go to YouTube and be like, hey, let me sell my statement of work. Or you can't go to Amazon and sell your statement of work. But through the VentureL platform, we can enable things like that to happen. Uh, and one of our core beliefs is, listen, there's tons of YouTube courses. There's tons of books. There's tons of thought leaders. But the core workflow and these kind of things, we want to enable you to be able to share, potentially make money off. But you know, we'll have those discussions later. But yeah, so that's VentureL is, is the first exclusively exclusive operating system built for your freelance business. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, it just sounds it just sounds huge. It's it's hard to grasp the concept of all the different things that are in there all in one place. So are you saying that you can actually communicate with clients that are all on different platforms in one place if you can manage to integrate with all these different platforms? Yes, but it depends on your situation. Like we yeah, have to, okay. and this is where what we're doing right now, which you know is we're building feature by feature with uh, with a certain certain select group of freelancers um, mm -hmm. because we don't want to, one of the, the worst things you can do is have is tech debt. 
right? And a bunch of software creep where we build a million things and in reality, oh, we should have only sure. built two. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, but in, in that situation, um, what usually happens from a client perspective, by the way, is a client is sitting on, say, like my, and if we're talking about large companies, uh, a client has a Microsoft Teams workspace that's company compliant. They also have a Trello workspace that they're not, that IT doesn't know about. But in the end of the day, mm-hmm. they just want email updates. And so, one of the features that we do have is we do have automated uh, kickoff emails. And so when a project starts, that client gets an email with a beautiful format saying, this is what's going to happen. Here's the files to look back to. Every Friday or whatever cadence you want, they're getting an update of this is what happened this week. Here's the source files. Um, I did used to have uh, templates for my freelancers on how to give me email updates because that is one skill and that's a, that's a podcast in itself. But how to write good leadership update emails, if you can nail that. And that would be, that'd be incredible. But so that is one thing the platform can handle is uh, automated emailing so that you're not going through a million different project management tools. You're just sticking to email. Yeah. Awesome. Would it typically be the, let's say you've got a freelancer that is working with a corporation. Would it typically be the freelancer using VentureL or would it be the client organization or would both of them be using it? Who who would typically be the one? Just, just the freelancer. freelancer. Yeah. Think about it like um, think about it like if you have an Intel chip in your computer, you don't know necessarily, you don't buy that computer and say, I, I, I bought this because of the Intel chip. But if you have the Intel chip, it's going to be faster and smoother than if you didn't. So Venturel, where we're getting to, since we do have sort of the credibility from, from large companies already, uh, we do have the credibility that we know how to scale freelancers. And so if you do say, hey, I'm running on the Venturel platform, then your clients are going to understand that, oh, okay, this isn't just a, like we kind of mentioned before, like a passive gig, you know, passive gigger. Uh, this is someone that we can trust that understands things like statement of works and how to really operate projects at scale. Um, but we, we do not uh, in, in any shape or form, we do not want to be the middle layer because usually what happens is you become a work matching platform and you have to pick one. And usually you pick the client cause that's where most of the money is. And so for us, it's very important to be strictly for the freelancers. Uh, and if we do have sort of, if we do connect them with companies, we're never going to make a dollar off of that because that's just, it's, it's unfair. We, we only care about the freelancers. No, that makes sense. It's good that both sides don't need it because then it gives a flexibility for the freelancer to pick and choose their projects without having to worry about do they run some kind of software. Everyone's going to have a different tech stack. Yeah, but if you can control your own processes, that's what's important. So, no, that's great. Fantastic. I think we need deeper than that. The one the one thing I want to kick in is is even the freelance platforms. Um, one of the big things that we fundamentally stand against as a company is the fact that if your merit lives on a platform, it can't translate, right? So we all have a LinkedIn, but if you're living on a tile marketplace and you did say 10 projects and you got five stars and you had great reviews, if you now go work on a different platform, that's not going to translate or that's not living on your LinkedIn. So it's very, very important to us as a company that it's your data, it's your merit. Um, and whether you're working for this company, this platform, you name it, uh, this is the one source file where finally, you know, it doesn't matter where you work, what you do, like this is yours. You can do whatever you want with it. No, that makes sense. And actually, that's why I think it's so important to have your own website, your own YouTube channel, or well, even YouTube that's on another platform, but at least you own, the, you have the media. So you can always just upload it somewhere else, you know, podcasts and things, because if you are relying on a platform, you only need one person to give you a bad review and they might, they might just be really dodgy clients and they didn't give you the right uh, guidelines in terms of what they wanted. You deliver something that you think is exceptional, they give you a bad review and then all of a sudden you've now got to try and dig yourself out of that. So being able to control the way that you are presenting yourself publicly, I think is incredibly important. It's hard to brand yourself when you're just an anonymous person on a board, right? So yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, I think we need to move into picks. Okay. So um, actually, before we do that, how can someone reach out to you if they want to know more about you or your book or Venture L? Yeah, so uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Uh, reach out to me there. Uh, with Venturel, like I mentioned, we are sort of selecting a select group of few uh, pilot uh, pilot customers. And then we are sort of 
uh, running our Slack community as well. So we'd love to see if, if people are a good fit to really, really join the network. And it's all about community, right? It's all about uplifting each other together. Um, so yeah, so reach out to me via LinkedIn. Uh, our website is venturel.io. And uh, if you want to go a little bold, feel free to email me at matthew at venturel.io. But you have to include a GIF of something funny, preferably a golden retriever. Are you building applications with Vue.js? then you need to check out the Views on View podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the View community and talk about the interesting things being built with View or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for providing that. Now, uh, you, like me, are a big reader. And I was looking through your pics and it looked like you had quite a few of them. <laughs> Do you want to share some, some, of, the, some of those pics that you had? Yeah, for what sure. So I, think, I think the first one uh, is New Power by Jeremy Hymans. Uh, that book will, man, it'll get you just super excited. It, it's it's much deeper than uh, here's a technology book or here's a business book. It's, it's talking about how technology has sort of created a societal change where you, the freelancer, the actual creators are the ones that have the power, um, which in line with our book, it's really along this whole thing of you are, because of technology, you can do more than you ever had before. And you can do it from the, from your home, from a coffee shop, you name it. And so the power is coming back to the individual. So new power, Jeremy Hyman's uh, second book. I've, I've read a lot of Eric Brynjolfsson and, and Andrew McAfee. I will admit I'm a huge tech geek. And so you will not find me in the self-help section. I think most of that is kind of crap, to be honest. Um, I think, I think, yeah, it's usually just common sense that's resold, but um. Uh, so Jeremy Hyman's and, and or sorry, um, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee, uh, Second Machine Age, which is an awesome book and the machine platform crowd. And that'll give you a lot of the technology that is creating what we're talking about. Uh, another, another quick one is uh, Kevin, Ke Kevin Kelly, The Inevitable. And once you start, if you buy those three, I promise you like the Amazon recommendations will be great. <laughs> so you'll, you'll be stuck for a couple months. Fantastic. I haven't read any of these books. So now I'm like, wow, there's a whole new set of books that I haven't read. Yeah, Amazon <laughs> is going to be so pile <laughs> uh, When I go on Amazon and I start buying books, uh, I can never just settle with one book. I always buy a stack of 10 at once. And then I just love it because like, the courier just keeps coming with another book and they never deliver them all at once. They always yep. deliver individual parcels. So it's like it's always my birthday when I'm on a book buying spree. And now I've got a whole new list, so I'm excited. Perfect. Well, <laughs> if only they did like the 10 books for one or something, like they need to package it to make, to incentivize me even more to waste my money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm on Audible as well. And I'm always waiting for the next month to tick over so that I can get my next credit. And then when they do the whole three credits and everything, I'm, yeah, I've, I've got too many though, because I prefer reading books, like paper books. And so now I've got too many Audible books that I haven't listened to yet. So, well, in terms of my pick this week, actually I'm going super offline and I haven't got a link because it's not a linkable. But and I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but I am having so much fun with my kids painting rocks and hiding them around the neighbourhood. And you're laughing at me, but you know what? This is so fun. This is so, so fun. I just can't describe how fun it is. So if anyone ever, like, I don't know if you've ever found a painted rock, but it's a real thing at the moment. It's kindness rocks. That oh, is, it, is, yeah. it is not that funny. It is a real I feel thing. like that's an insult someone might have given me in like grade school. They told me to go paint rocks <laughs> and you're actually doing it. So that's no, awesome. But do you know what? It is so fun because basically there's a few reasons why it's fun. So first of all, I am the type of person I need to always be concentrating on something. So I need to have a hobby. If I don't have a hobby, uh, basically I default to books. But if I'm a bit tired of reading books, then I need to have a hobby. Otherwise, I just start, I don't know, pacing around the house. I need to have something that I'm concentrating on all the time. And I think this is why I was a programmer for 10 years, because I just wouldn't leave my desk. I would just work and I would love that concentration. And so first of all, it's a concentration activity. Painting is a concentration activity. But then second of all, kids, they just love the, because a rock is something that they, it's tangible. They can pick it up in their hand. And so they love to play with them. They love to pick them up. They love to feel them. And then when you go and hide them around your neighborhood, you've taught your children to do something 
wonderful for others because then other children also pick up these rocks and it's beautiful treasures to them. And so there's all these groups that you can join now, um, these rock sharing groups. And you can um, basically post that you found this rock and you can put your postcode on and people can share that they found it. And it is so fun. It gets the kids out in the nature as well because you go for a walk and you find rocks and you hide rocks. It's, it's wonderful. So I haven't really got a link to that, but if anyone has ever thought of a new hobby, painting rocks is actually a real hobby these days and it's a good one. <laughs> that I, I'll, I'll be honest, I was not expecting that uh, in any way, shape or form. <laughs> And I, and I feel like it reminds me of like a, a, a sales exercise where they're like, hey, go and sell this. I feel like you just nailed the, hey, go and sell this painted rock. Like you just, I, I'm, I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm ready to go, <laughs> go hide some rocks all over Singapore. Yeah, do it. And then if, if you want, hide a rock and then just hide somewhere out of the way and see a child pick it up and just see the expression on their face when they are so excited by this rock that they just found. It is amazing. It's really great. All maybe, right, well, maybe you can you can uh, leave a link for like your your top five designs, so we, we can we can know some designs that you think are real real hits. Okay, great, good idea. All right, well, I will leave a link for some pictures of painted rocks. I can probably even link some pictures of my painted rocks if you really want to see them. So, alrighty, well, I'll do that. But I think it's time to finish. I don't know if you guys are hearing all the background noise, but my family just woke up, which means there's going to be chaos around here. And it's been fantastic having you today, Matthew. Thanks for yeah, coming. Thanks along. for having me, Petra. This is a blast. I'm always, I'm always a listener, so it's exciting. Uh, I will definitely not listen to this episode. I think there's uh, much better ones out there. But uh, no, it's, it's, it's always awesome to be a huge fan, huge listener, and, and jump on. So thanks for having me. Oh, well, I think it's been a fantastic episode. So thanks a lot. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.